Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sometimes Podcast of the Nerd. Um, uh, it might have been a weird intro, but uh, yeah, just trying to spruce things up around here. I don't know why I go with the high voice, uh, and it, maybe it's just the, the opposite register. Anyway, I'm Ian, I am late, and you already knew that. Um, because it's Monday... My goal is to have a conversation with you on Monday, and the outline I'm working on for today's podcast is from last week, uh, which was an odd, odd, odd week. A cool week. Confronting is good. Uh, You know, sort of the the, uh, change doesn't, change occurs at the, change doesn't occur in comfort. Change occurs at the boundaries of comfort, and... uh, um, being uncomfortable, that's kind of what this podcast is about, really. Um, boundary pushing and all of that. So, um, one of the things, one of the weird things about confronting, right? One of the things to bear in mind when it comes to fear and anxiety about change and all that. We're not talking calculated, planned for. I've been meaning to switch to real estate, uh, switch from real estate to writing the great American novel, not that kind of change. Um, anything that comes along to snap you out of the reverie of your day-to-day normal. And I guess there was a point where I had managed to create something that was the culmination, right, of what I thought adulthood was supposed to look like when I was younger. Whatever that you know, a uh, nature and nurtured version of success was good, steady income, regular daily work, home, stability, and I was so bored. Sometimes I have to keep that in mind, right? Uh, that was when the big creeping empty was coming uh, at me on a daily basis, was sort of at that It's very much that Alan Watts on music concept of, uh, you know, it was music, uh, which I talked about. And you, of course, know what happened after. That was um, kind of the beginning of uh, where we are now. But I guess the thing is, if you want your life to be filled up with stories and and adventure, and, and, you know, why the hell would you not? want your life to be filled up with stories and adventure, it's important to embrace the fact early on that it is very often going to be scary. It's a fallacy to believe that dedicating an abundance of thought to a thing is going to cure you of the fear of it before you take the plunge. And that's a fallacy that I deeply, deeply suffer from. Um, Some things worth doing are just always going to be scary until they're done. And fear just isn't a good enough guide alone to make choices by. And there was a lot of that this week. Personal life and family life. And, uh, you know, I had been kind of blocking out the news and uh, keeping things at a distance, insulating myself. And, you know, that's the... I think we all need um, an ebb and a flow. Too much ebb or too much flow and there's uh, you sort of fall apart. Uh, I think I'm ready to take a little time (laughs) 
time and relax. But um, anyway, it's been a week. I'm going to talk to you about some of it today. Today on the podcast, I wanted to spend a little time talking to you about some of my thoughts on mortality. That's a little strange. I get it, but we'll get into it. It's some stuff to do with what happened last week. Oddly, there's been a handful of recent events that have been stirring that particular pot in my head. Then I'm going to talk to you about the latest entry in uh, Jack and My List of Shame movie night. And I want to talk a little bit about the state of this podcast. Um, You know, I think last week kind of highlighted uh, uh, a need for some consideration uh, about this. And then we're going to end with, I believe it's chapter 20 of Terry Botta's fanfic, Here Is Gone. But before I get into that, jeez, listen to me. Just going on and on talking about myself. I've been insanely rude. How are you? How are you doing? You okay? Holding up? I hope so. I'm not going to talk about the news or current events today because I think you and I both get enough of that. But you're here. It's a new day. You're carrying your rock. Let it be enough, okay? Because it is. So, uh, last Monday, about a week ago, I went uh, with my sister to spend some time with my 96-year-old grandpa, Stuart. He's living by himself in a nice trailer home community for seniors. He's still independent. Um, My grandma died about five years ago, and at that point, his dementia had already been starting to set in a little bit. He's still very lucid. Uh, My sister tells me he still tells some of the same stories he always does, but I do that to you. I, uh, I have the Martin memory, and I'm not entirely sure how many times I've told you guys the same story. Hopefully it's, um, uh, equally entertaining every time, but somehow I doubt it. Um, but again, my point being that uh, telling the same story, hopefully that's not a mark of dementia, or I might be in some trouble. My mom's side of the family has genes made out of granite, though. Um, even though he looks smaller in his clothing and is a little hunched over, when he shook my hand, he still has a grip. Grandpa did, um, did asphalt and paving and ran his own business, and uh, he's very much a... A Willie Loman type, um, uh, but I, I don't mean that in a sort of critiquing sort of way. But uh, uh, you know, for as long as I was remember when I was young, he was um, always on to something that you know he had a solar powered scooter in the eighties and uh, uh, things that he was going to sell. He uh, thought of himself as a salesman and you know uh, was looking for the the big thing to pan out. Um, which is something I hadn't thought about until now. One of the things about memory, or I guess one of the things about grief, is that part of the thing you need to be able to do it successfully is days. By that I mean the accumulation of them, new memories, the sensation of time passing. I I guess it starts to show you that you're alive, and you're going to be okay. And I think with his dementia, Grandpa is losing some of that capability. He thought the last time that I visited, 
uh, or that maybe we hadn't seen each other since I was in high school, which was, for those of you uh, who don't have the visual version, uh, about 25 years ago. My grandma um, died in a hospital bed, and he has commented that um, he lost his wife in a car accident recently. And I wonder, too, if because if he's um, if because of that he's struggling with the grief process because he can't weigh the days with the same kind of accuracy and um, every time uh, I see him I I open up with hey grandpa how you doing and he says oh I'm painfully lonely but I'm I'm getting by um, and that you know I uh, I never want to overshare the details of uh my friends or family but uh you know we'll say very gently other than my sister my family is full of islands uh myself considered myself included Uh, my grandpa is more the type of grandpa you imagine at a dinner table with grandkids around his feet leave it to beaver style uh but that's not really my clan uh You know, so he spends a lot of his day um, napping in front of the television watching People's Court. Though I, you know, whenever I see uh, an opportunity for improvement, of course, I try and attack it. And I'm working on personally being better with family the last couple of years. Uh, Still have a long way to go. Uh, My dad's mom lived with us during her final years and we had to watch her go to Alzheimer's, which is a vicious and cruel illness. It's like watching someone you love be dismantled in front of you and slowly. And now, uh, both my parents are in their 70s. And so I don't have the world's greatest memory by any stretch of the imagination. It's impossible to have... it's impossible to have the mortality conversation without it feeling dark, which is not at all where I want to drive us today. That I don't feel like that's my that's the role that I I I I want our conversations to have. But uh, sometimes it jumps you, right? You don't always get to say, "I'm not trying to jump you." I'm saying the mortality <laughs> saying the mortality conversation just comes up when it comes up. Um. And it feels a bit like, you know, it can feel a bit like a, um, the, 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 the grief or the sadness or, or all of that that comes along with, with mortality, thinking about your own or thinking about other people's can feel a bit like an infection. You know, my grandpa was working in the Merchant Marine. I've heard stories uh, about him being in Egypt, waking up in the middle of the night on the open sea, standing inside his bunk because the ship was going over such a giant wave, marrying my grandma and traveling to every state. Um, And he's still here, but there is this, um, you know, kind of sitting with him and watching him in a current state, there's that preemptive sadness that occurs spending time with him now and watching him fade a bit. Um, And I start to think about what I would do or what I would want to do if my mind started to go, given that, um, you know, we sort of watched 
that happened with two different grandparents. And sometimes I think about just, you know, being gone. That's part of the human journey, right? Um, so here, I uh, here's how I deal with that. And I'm elevating what a coping mechanism that I think I've developed somewhat subconsciously. There are three things that come to me. And yes, I don't feel as though I'm speaking any great wisdom here. Um, some of this may come off as aphoristic. But during a breakup, during a breakup, suddenly every trite pop song on the radio starts speaking to you. Um, you know, so these things sort of are there when they have purpose. And, um, you know, when they don't feel like something else. So um, I, I, what, what I'm saying is I don't necessarily feel like I have anything to offer the conversation that great philosophers haven't already done with far more skill and elegance. But I personally still have to contend with that fear and despair. And I am not a philosopher. I am me. These kinds of things are an inevitable part of the journey, and I can't let the fact that I'm not Aristotle be enough for me to just settle for fear and despair. So here's where I go. Um, this is my, well, let's call it my functional approach to this aspect of my own humanity. The first thing, um, everything, everyone, absolutely, every great artist, writer, lover, tyrant, poet, Every animal, they're all gone. It's part of the membership, the last graduation, and I am not special. I am no different. I don't get something that Martin Luther King or Shakespeare or Mary Curie or Queen Victoria didn't get. Or a child that went alone and uncelebrated a hundred years ago. Why should I? For some reason, I find that thought humbling. Uh, and peaceful. I also think that whenever awareness of these things started to come over me, it was at a time when I first uh, was becoming present to the unbelievable richness of possibility that a life can be full of. What a cruel unfairness that that should have an expiration date. I was just getting started, and I had so much to do. And maybe there was a feeling that there would never be enough time there couldn't be enough time. I want to write. I want to travel. I want to love. I need to do that. And the idea of death induces a kind of manic shift uh, at the time between despair and wanting to do all of those things now. Now. But maybe 20 years on, I'm halfway through the story. I'm half dead. <laughs> And I've accumulated a lot of experiences. I've traveled. I have loved. Um, I've gotten to back at this point in my life to creating things. And like I talked about with Ryan last week, certain windows of possibilities close behind me as you go. My childhood dream of pitching a complete game for the Chicago Cubs is now behind me. That door closed. And the experience of that door closing had me kind of go, that's okay. That's okay. Um, and there's more that I want to do, but I've also lived long enough now to have this weird feeling that I'm closer now to being able to say I took my shot, um, to be able to say that it's enough. 
and the fact and that's that's all I'm I'm talking about is the fact that even if I don't feel that moment right now I feel like that moment exists not that I'll be done or not that I won't make um use of any extra any more time given me but but it's enough you know um it isn't yet though and that brings me to the third thing grandpa is still here <laughs> and so am i so it's important to get busy not i mean fill a life up with experiences yes but the problem with the aphorism live live every day as though it's your last is it's a famine approach to living likely Today is not my last, and living that way doesn't cook up possibilities that take advantage of one of a lifetime's greatest assets, and that is its length. It's important to have adventures, and I think it's equally important to pick a huge project and work on trying to master something. For me, writing, recording, and editing the Buffy Guide was a part of that desire. So, where does that leave things? Um... I don't know. There is no right answer here, of course, and I didn't bring this up with the intention of offering any. Why the hell would I know? <laughs> uh, you know, the answer. Um, but these are the mechanisms that I find myself using, probably self-conscious, sub subconsciously, uh, in order to make my way back to that place where I feel the most free, the most productive, the most able to work. And that is in the present moment. I don't know if death actually is something that makes life worth living. I think that living a life of worth and service is what does that. But it is one of the things that makes it a luxury. One donut can be a beautiful thing. An infinity of donuts is forever meaningless. So, enough about that. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about... Um, the List of Shame movie night. We've watched a couple of movies. Um, I just and I just wanted to bring you bring you. Excuse me, having a little trouble talking today. I just wanted to bring you up to date. Few to cover here, and the podcast is insanely late, so I'm going to give each of these woefully inadequate coverage. More of a teaser, and if you have any interest in going and checking them out yourself, you should do that. The first was uh, the Red Shoes published in 1948. Um, a little like Wild Strawberries, which both Jack and I loved, uh, in that The Red Shoes is a vaunted director's movie to list as one of their favorite movies of all time. I think I mentioned you could see a bit of Shutter Island and Wild Strawberries. Well, Martin Scorsese's name is in the credits for the 1080p restoration. I don't know why I had the P. The HD restoration of uh, The Red Shoes. Is 1080i still a thing? I, 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 oh, for broadcast, yeah, 1080i is still a thing. Anyway, pull it together, Ian. The Red Shoes is about a dance company putting on a ballet about a pair of shoes that make a woman dance until she dies. The lead in the ballet is torn between the demands of the company owner and the composer she is in love with. Which, um, and uh, my favorite part of it was the 17-minute ballet sequence in the middle where the troupe performs the ballet and the ballet overtakes the narrative of the movie. The camera doesn't just shoot the stage but travels into it 
And the narrative of the ballet becomes the surreal narrative of the film for about 17 minutes. It, that is g gorgeous. I really enjoyed that. The rest of the film, on the other hand, was tedious. Um, there were three of us watching this together. Now, here's the thing. Jack and I watched this with some other people, and at some point, we were all of us getting bored. Um, now, I don't know about... I, I'm not interested in... I'm never interested in providing a review. I don't. I, I don't believe that 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 necessarily that sort of anecdotal evidence provides um, a more objective opinion of, which is you know to me that it doesn't work of uh, the movie. I'm just saying the there were three of us there, and uh, we all got frustrated. Um, we all got bored and we all started dunking on it a little bit. The two men in the movie, the troupe owner, or the company owner, and the composer are awful to Victoria, the lead. Um, ostensibly, the theme wants you to get into the idea of dying for art or uh, art reflecting life. And I love the way the meta aspect of the ballet reflected... Um, Victoria's life and Victoria being stuck between the company owner and the um, the man she was in love with. But the, the two guys are, and I don't use this word lightly, dicks. <laughs> and don't care about her having a life of her own, an identity. So it's a little hard to get into the theme when you're wanting to yell at the scream... Screw both of them, Victoria. They're both... You're you're better than this. You don't need these two guys. And I think, sadly, the way the movie is put together reflects the disinterest of the men in her life um, and the, reflects the disinterest of the men in Victoria's well-being. If it, Victoria is the protagonist, it's hard to tell because she has the fewest number of lines in the film and is often in scenes where she's just sitting in the film while one of these two men talk at her and tell her what to do. Um, and if she's not the protagonist, and this is more of a painting or an operatic wide view of something, then it still became impenetrable because we all hated the men as much as we did. Perhaps we just couldn't see back past the conventions of the time it was written. I absolutely accept that that is one of the biggest challenges of doing the kind of project we are doing. I really do try to dig with these. I really tried to like it. I hate not liking things. And as we were all sitting there dunking on it, I kept trying to search for its merits in conversation, other than the dance sequence, which was self-evidently awesome. I uh, even read Roger Ebert's great movie review uh, after we were done, but it still felt like we'd seen two different films. One thing that might make you want to watch it, though, is it's clearly one of Whedon's inspirations for the Angel episode, Waiting in the Wings. Um, the wizard who wants River to dance forever. Uh, or Warlock. What's the difference between a wizard and a warlock? Let me know in the comments below. Um, the whole ballet bit is Whedon having some fun with the red shoes in that one. Um, and it was neat based on those merits. I love seeing the inspiration of, you know, other pieces of media that I really love. Um, the other one that we watched after the red shoes, uh, and we roll randomly from the list, was Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Uh... <laughs> 
which was as much of a struggle for me as the red shoes, if for very different reasons. I wish, I wish, I wish that I loved watching bad schlocky movies, but I just don't. I think I get the appeal. I've had friends invite me to bad movie nights, um, you know, talk about Mystery Science Theater was never one of my favorite things, but I feel like Mystery Science Theater is its own thing. Enjoying Mystery Science Theater isn't necessarily enjoying bad movie nights, but I get that that is sort of representative of the culture or the experience of a bad movie night. And who the hell does not want more fun? You know, I understand that the 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 that my personal taste in that regard limit me from fun. So I wish I was different. I want to love the experience, but they just induce in me such frustration and boredom. I just want to be doing anything else. I want to be watching something good or well-made. I want to be playing a board game with the same group of people that I'm sitting there watching it with anything else. I wish I had fun with schlocky bad movies, but it just isn't in my wheelhouse. But part of the whole exercise is Jack and I getting out of our comfort zones, try foods we w normally wouldn't, diversify our palates. So, you know, the red shoes and Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. I watched it. And that's my review. <laughs> uh, next movie on the agenda we rolled is Citizen Kane. Uh, it's a huge hole in my media background, so I'm looking forward to it on those merits alone, and that's coming up this Wednesday. All right, so the state of this podcast. I've been recording a um, Friday vlog video as a Patreon bonus and posting it. I say vlog, it's just me chatting into the camera without a script about the week's events. And despite the personal things um, that came up last week, I mean, I've been dealing with some baggage and fear that's been hanging around for eight years and uh, some family struggles and uh, just sort of consequently this f the podcast fell into this zone of perfectionism for me where I was overwriting it and overplanning it and so forth. And because part of my objective with this is to just kind of be open and vulnerable about my, um, just kind of my, my creative process and the the things that fall onto the path in front of it and all of that. Um, you know, when you're sort of in the heat of any particular uh, problem or upheaval or new thing, it just kind of becomes more of a challenge. Um, this outline is the third or fourth version um, that I cycled through last week. You know, would throw something together, hate it throw it aside. In the meantime, the work that I wanted to get done on Guys Will Be Guys and the next episode guide didn't get touched. And those videos are the reasons why I get to eat. And that same phenomena was my reason for ending Nerd Chipper. But I feel like in whatever the passion of the nerd brand is, still feels weird for me to say that, this podcast is an important component to that. It's a necessary third leg to that in my mind. My ability to speak to you directly. Um, I think this is what the uh, channel news videos have morphed into, and to me, uh, this is much more interesting than those were, more of a challenge. Um, I hope it is to you as well. 
But the podcast needs to be low-hanging one-day fruit for me. Unlike the episode guides, the most important priority for the podcast is that it's done. Um, and as long as that happens, it can be as good as I can make it, adhering to that guideline. With the episode guides, I just sort of have this... I'm looking for this feeling of, okay, I ha I've said everything I have to say, or, okay, this is the writing is as put together as I think it can be, or the editing is as clean as it can be. Um, so whatever this has organically turned into right now, over the next few weeks, I need to start experimenting with what's necessary to make this thing that starts on a Monday or a Tuesday and is released on a Monday or a Tuesday. Uh, whether that means it's shorter, a half hour, it's less scripted, I spend less time on it, whatever that may be, things are going to be a little bit different in the upcoming few. But I hope that you still enjoy it. That is in the hierarchy of priorities for me with the podcast, just as it is any video on the channel. Um, this week, there's no Patreon hangout coming up. I'm going to be uh, working on... Whoa. The kitty is a little excited. Uh, sorry about that. Simmer down now. Hey, that worked. Um, this week, now that the podcast is done, I'm going to be working on Guys Will Be Guys. Um, you know, we'll, uh, uh, it would be lovely to be editing by Friday. Um, we'll see how it goes. Before I get into the fan fiction reading, I just wanted to let you know that I'm at Ian Nitram on Twitter. And youtube.com slash passion of the nerd. If you'd like to support the channel or this podcast, keep me flush with ennui and existential dread, you can do so at patreon.com slash passion of the nerd. With the $5 and up club, you can join me in the hangout in two weeks. Um, or you can support uh, this effort by grabbing yourself something from passionofthenerd.com slash store. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you may not realize this, but you can support me for free by using your monthly Amazon Prime Twitch subscription at twitch.tv slash thepassionofthenerd. However, I uh, Twitch stream very rarely, so if you do follow any other Twitch streamers, obviously they are going to be a more deserving, so please uh, give them yours. Um, Alright, so we were on Chapter 20 which means that we have 10 new chapters for a compilation video, which I will be uh, getting up this week, hopefully. Let me get the size right here. Alrighty. Here is Gone by Terry Boda, Chapter 20. Spike was awakened from his slumber by Giles closing the front door. Turning around slowly, he rolled to face the man, watching him with interest as he moved about the kitchen, removing items from a paper bag. He then saw Giles pour himself a glass of scotch. Oi! Watch her. Bring me one of those over here, will ya? He called. Giles nodded, poured the requested drink, and joined Spike in the living room. The dejected slump of his shoulders and weary look as he sat down told Spike all he needed to know. Did you get more Weetabix? Yes and two more bottles of bourbon. Nothing like drowning your sorrows. Thanks, he said, taking the offered drink. I take it you followed my advice. He was referring to Giles's revealing Riley's habit to Buffy. The man sighed and nodded sadly. Yes. How'd she take it? 
Not well, I'm afraid. She, she was very distraught. Spike nodded, remembering. He'll be gone soon, off to save the world or some such rot, and abandoning her, all because he needed to feel self-important. Pillock. She'd be better off without him. Deserves that someone will stay. What is it with men leaving our girl, Rupert? First her useless prat of a father, then Angel, and now Riley. Hell, even you left her. You've made her think she wasn't good enough for anyone to stick around. Giles rubbed his forehead tiredly. I'm sure I had good reasons for leaving. No. It was just that seeing your slayer die a second time broke you, then seeing how she was after they brought her back broke you again. You were just protecting yourself, Spike replied plainly. There was no malice or gloating in it, just a simple statement of truth. Yes, well, hopefully together we can avoid all of that. Spike's eyes took on a faraway look, and he spoke into the bottom of his empty glass. Do it or gonna die trying. You know, she said it. On the night it all went down, she said all of us were gonna make it. I thought it would be me that died. This time round, I'm gonna make sure if somebody's gotta go, it's gonna be me. Giles refilled his glass from the bottle. On a happier note, Giles said, Joyce is doing very well and we should, and should be released from the hospital soon. Knew she'd come out of it all right. It was only after a blood clot, you said. Spike nodded. Yeah, real sudden-like. Buffy and the Niblet were all happy and everyone thought it was all over. Then she up and died. Buffy found her on the couch. Poor wooden woman hadn't known what hit her. Buffy found her. Spike nodded sadly. Yeah. Giles rubbed his temples. Good lord. Way I see it. The best way to pre prevent that is to get her on blood thinners, he said. Blood thinners? A good plan, and one that shouldn't be too hard to execute. Spike agreed, downing the rest of his drink. Giles paused, looking down, and Spike knew there was more news. Buffy asked about you today, Giles admitted. Spike reached for the scotch and poured another drink. He took a gulp of it before replying. He needed the alcohol to dull the, pl the pain. Did she now? The watcher fingered his glass. Yes. She wanted to know what you, how you were doing. She was concerned. Not concerned enough to not hit me in the first place, he grumbled. Spike, Buffy... Buffy is under a great deal of strain. You don't have to make excuses for her, Watcher. I know what kind of strain she's under. It doesn't condone her behavior, but... But you forgive her because she's Buffy and she's under a lot of pressure. I know, and really, I do understand. It's not the first time she's done this to me anyway. Giles looked surprised. She's beaten you before. In the future, the nerd trio tried to make her think she killed this girl. Buffy wanted to turn herself in. I tried to stop her. She ended up pummeling me into the concrete in the alley by the police station. When she was done, she just left me there. I could barely move. I had to drag myself back to my crypt, he remembered sadly. But the worst of it was, I knew why she did it. Hell, I'd even told her to put it all on me. I knew I could take it. It was afterwards she never once said she was sorry. Not once. I was just a soulless demon to her. It didn't matter what she did to me. You don't have a soul. There's nothing good or clean in you. That's why you can't understand you're dead inside. You can't feel anything real. I could never be your girl, he recalled, eyes squeezing shut. She said... She said there was nothing good or clean in me because I didn't have a soul. 
that I couldn't feel anything real. He stopped, hand trembling as he took another drink of scotch. Giles cleaned his glasses nervously. Yes, well, that is what she would say. Spike's head snapped up. You know that's bollocks, don't you? Giles looked away, nervous. I'm beginning to understand that. Anyway, back to our slayer asking after me. What did you tell her? I managed to hedge some. I told her that you were recovering. I also told her what you told me about smelling Joyce's illness. She seemed to accept that. It's true. I mean, if I hadn't known about her illness from before, I still would have known something was wrong. All I had to do was spend some time with her, and I would have smelled it right off. Yes, and it is something we should have thought of. Anyway, what about showing up in all the right places? Now it was Giles' turn to drink. I couldn't tell her the truth. Told her that you'd gotten some tips from a demon in Willie's. Didn't think she could handle it. Frankly, I'm not sure I can handle it, Giles retorted back. Spike shrugged, told you you didn't want to know. And for once, I can say, you were telling me the absolute truth. They fell silent, as they each took another drink. To be honest, to be honest, I'm very worried about Buffy, Giles confessed. Her behavior tonight and her beating of you is deeply disturbing to me. I fear my slayer is coming apart at the seams and I am helpless to stop it. Our girl is tough, Watcher. She keeps it together real well. If we can save her mum, it'll do a lot of good. Joyce's death was a real shock. That is heartening. However, I do think that things are too volatile for me to leave. I was planning to return to England to speak to the Watcher's Council about information on glory. But since you have told me everything I need to know... No, Spike interrupted. You have to go, Watcher. Giles was taken aback. Why? It's one of the things I knew I couldn't change. While you're gone, Red and Demon Girl have a bit of a spat while Red's trying to cast a spell. Things go wonky and she ends up conjuring a troll. A troll? Yeah. Turns out it was one of Anya's ex-boyfriends. He cheated on her and she turned him into a troll. Anyway, he had a thing about witches, went on a rampage and smashed up the magic box. Then he headed over to the bronze and did a fair bit of damage there. And I should allow this to happen exactly? Why? To satisfy your lust for carnage. Spike rolled his eyes. A few injuries and a couple of smashed-up support posts constitutes carnage to you. Watcher, you have no idea what real carnage is. And Jealous and Darla in Paris in 1890, that was carnage. A troll in the bronze was a minor incident. Besides, I'd love to stop it. The bronze was closed for weeks afterwards, and after they reopened, they raised the drink prices and took the bloomin' onion off the menu. My point is, after Red sent them off to troll Paradise, he left his hammer behind. If we end up going against Glory, that hammer will be what Buffy uses against her. Giles shook his head, understanding. So I have to let that happen, because we need the weapon. Spike tapped his nose. Got, in, got it in one. Knew you were an Oxford man. Cambridge, actually. What else, pray tell you, comes of my trip? Spike thought a moment. Well, the council sends a team to interrogate the Slayer. Need to make sure she can handle the information they put have on Glory. Put her through all kinds of tests, threaten to close the magic box, and have you deported if she doesn't comply. Those pillocks. Spike put up a hand. Now, now, Rupee, don't get your knickers in a twist. Our girl turns, uh, turns 
on them and gets the rest of them. Even gets you, you your job back with retroactive pay. She does, Giles repeated, astonished. Spike nodded. She does. Told you our girl was tough. Would you please stop calling Buffy our girl? Why? That's what she is, isn't it? I think both she and I would beg to differ. Spike shrugged. Have it your way, then. Oh, I doubt that, Giles muttered. In any case, there's some things we can change and some things we can't. Believe me, I've spent a great deal of time working out what I can do and what will mess me up. Olaf, Olaf the Troll was one of those foregone conclusions. Giles shook his head. Olaf. Spike chuckled. You should have seen him. You should have seen the look on the whelp's face when he said he used to be Anya's boyfriend. Giles laughed with him and wiped a tear from his eye. Yes, I can imagine that was quite amusing. Spike took another drink and poured himself, poured both him and himself Giles more. Spike took another drink and poured both himself and Giles more. was until he knocked the second-level platform down. Oh, dear. They drank a little bit more, then Giles asked, So, tell me what other events of foregone conclusions. I need to know if I'll need more insurance. Well, Glinda's spell of non-seeing was one. Captain Cardboard leavings was another. You going to England, retconjuring the troll. The council coming here to test Buffy and... Oh, bloody hell. Spike answered. What? The bot! The damn Buffy bot! We used her as a decoy to distract Lori! I have to go get that geek Warren to order and order him to make me a Buffy bot. Now it was Giles's turn to chuckle. Let me get this straight. I have to let my shop be demolished by a troll that Willow conjures by accident because we need his hammer, and you have to contact a sociopath homicidal technophile to make you a sex bot that looks like Buffy. That about sums it up, Roops. Giles raised his glass. Welcome to the Hellmouth. Cheers. We've got time. Let's do another one. Uh, I need some water. Just a second. Chapter 21. Passions was on when Dawn knocked on Giles's door. Spike recognized her scent before he even answered, and gave the teen a smile as he swung the door open. Hello, Pit, he greeted, using the door to shield him from the sunlight that streamed in the open doorway. How'd you know it was me? she asked, smiling until she saw his face, still bruised from the beating he'd suffered. He tapped his nose as he closed the door and ushered her into the living room. Can sniff your team spirit from here, Bit. She blushed. Sorry, that dumb question, huh? Spike shrugged, moving to sit on the couch. Dawn sat next to him, placing her book bag on the floor. Came here from school, eh? Dawn nodded. Mom told me you were house-sitting for Giles while he's in England. Yeah. Old Rupert hasn't kicked me out yet. How are you feeling? Spike gave her a fond look of concern. Spike gave her a fond look for her concern. Mending. I can't believe Buffy beat you up like that. I mean, you can't even defend yourself. Now, now. You can't blame Big Sis. She's going through a lot. I haven't given her much reason to trust me in the past, he said gently. Dawn's face grew earnest. But you've changed. You've been helping us. You've been helping with patrol and stuff and helping me. Still a demon pet. Nothing will change that. Dawn looked away, pensive. I think she blames you for things you didn't do. That may be so. But if it is, there's nothing you or I can do about it. Tell me about your mum. How's she doing? 
Dawn perked up, smiling. She's home. The surgery went great, and the doctors say she'll they, that they got all of the tumor. He shared her enthusiasm. It's wonderful news, Bit. Now we just have to make sure she heals up right. Dawn nodded vigorously, and he smiled to himself. No time like the present. Spike motioned towards the television. Was watching that show. They have operation. Lots of blood and guts. They got cameras in the operating room. Shows you everything. Dawn's nose crinkled. Ew! Hey, bloke's gotta get his jollies off some way. Anyway, they were talking about risks after certain operations, blood clots and the like. Your mom's doc's gotta put her on blood thinners, all right? I, I, I don't know. Okay, look, Ernest. Maybe I ought to talk to her about it. Blood clots in the brain are no good. And with her coming out of surgery so well, don't want to be taking any chances now, do we? There. Plant that little bug in her ear. Dawn's eyes grew wide, and Spike saw the glimmer of fear in them. No, no, we don't. I'll, I'll talk to her about it, Spike. Thanks. He shrugged. It's just a thought. She touched his hand. A good thought. See what I mean? You'd never have thought about that before. You never would have even cared if Mom got sick. You have changed. She edged a little closer, eyes hooded and shy. I think you're beginning to like us. Warning! Warning! Teenage hormone bomb moving in for the kill. Got headed off at the passes. He moved further away on the couch, crossing his legs to make it harder to get closer. So, Bit, how's Big Sis? The mention of her sister had the desired effect and cooled Dawn's unwelcome advances. She's okay, Dawn answered with a shrug. Riley's gone, though. He feigned innocence, even though Giles had already told him of Riley's departure. Soldier boy. Yeah, she... Off to Belize or something like that. He and Buffy broke up. He had uh, a vamp problem. A vamp problem? Yeah, he was uh, he was paying vamps to bite him. Made him feel needed? What? Did Big Sis tell you that? Dawn shook her head. Overheard her talking to Willow about it. Spike gave her a proud smi smile. Becoming a veritable little eavesdropper, eh, Niblet? She shrugged. It's easy when no one notices you. Oh, I don't doubt. I doubt they don't notice you. Sometimes it feels that way. His caring instincts towards the girl overrode his reservations towards allowing her to get too close, and he moved over. Believe me, Bit, you are not the type of girl that goes unnoticed, he assured, leaning towards her. She looked at him, her eyes hopeful, preening. Really? You think so? He pulled back, but answered with complete honesty. Absolutely. Her grin was genuine, and he had to smile. Thanks, Spike. I mean, with Mom's illness and this new demon, I, I think Buffy sees me as a nuisance. He reached out and pushed a strand of her hair behind her, her ear. It was something he had been reluctant to do the last time he had lived this time. But months of caring for Dawn in the summer of Buffy's death and all the changes he had gone through in that time gave him a new ease. He knew Dawn was a tactile person like he was and that she craved physical contact. He wondered if the need for touch was a key thing or something that the monks just hadn't anticipated. You're never a nuisance, sweet bit. You're the apple of everyone's eye. And anyone that doesn't think you're wonderful is a bloody pillock. She giggled as, at his words and smiled. Thanks, Spike. He sat back and patted his thigh. So what are they teaching you in school these days? Dawn retrieved her book bag and pulled it onto her lap. I have a test in World War I in history on Friday. World War I, eh? You do know who really started that war, right? 
the Austrians, who wanted revenge for the murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and Germany gave them the blank check to do what they wanted and sent troops. Spike shook his head vigorously. No, that's not what happened, Bit. Yeah, the Duke got killed, and the Austrians were madder than hell. And since Germany and Austria are practically the same country as far as the royal family goes, old Kaiser Willem felt obligated to lend a hand. Now, Bit, if you read between the lines, you'll learn France was the one who pushed for the de declaration of war against Germany. Dawn's brow creased. Well, yeah, because Yugoslavia was afraid Germany would attack it. Attack them. Bollocks, he argued, pointing a finger at her. You mark my words, it was the French that started World War I, not the Germans. If the French had kept their noses out of it, Austria would have gotten revenge for Franz Ferdinand's murder, and that would have been it. That would have been it. She pulled out the history textbook. That's not what my book says. Sought the book. Don't they tell you that history is written by the victors? Of course they wouldn't tell you the truth. Believe me, Bit, take it from someone who was there. It was the French. She laughed. If you say so. Oh, I say so. In fact, if you look at history, the French are responsible for the whole lot of evil things they never got called on. She was smiling, her eyes dancing with mirth. She knew he was playing with her and loved it. No one ever gives this... No one ever gives this poor girl anything but grief. Oh, really? She said teasingly. Hell yeah. I mean, French fashion is the worst. And the food? They eat snails, for God's sake, and frog legs. They have absolutely no concept of real food. Pate and crepes. Disgusting. Give me a juicy London sausage or a leg of mutton any day. Dawn laughed outright, her joy filling the room. Pressed on, grinning at her. And café au lait, and croissant, and frillin' champagne, wine with bubbles. A true sign of a weak mind, I tell you. She was laughing so hard the tears were leaking from her eyes, and she was gasping for breath. And they're dogs, useless mongrels they are. Bloody French poodles, bloody poofters, the lot of them. Stop, Dawn cried through the breathless gaps. You're killing me. Spike chuckled and smiled. Oh, pet, if I was killing you, you'd know it. You always make me laugh, Spike. It's good to see a smile on your face, Bit. Can't stand to see a summer's woman frown. And speaking of frowning, your mum know you're here. Dawn looked guilty and he scowled out here. Now, Bit, you can't be having her worried about you. She'll send big sis and things will get ugly. You use that phone over there and call her. Before Buffy comes blazing in here and stakes are drawn. Okay. She folded herself from the couch and did... She unfolded herself from the couch and did as he asked. A few moments later, she came back. Mom needs me home, so I have to go. She was glad I called. She was getting worried, but when I said I was over here with you, she was cool. She told me to tell you to come over sometime. I'd like that. Tell her I'll be by. I will, she promised, shouldering her book bag and heading for the door. Bye, Spike. I'm glad you're feeling better. Bye, Bit. I'll be seeing you. She gave him, a, gave him a final fond glance and headed out, closing the door quietly behind her. After she was gone, he tried to refocus on watching TV, but found that he missed her. There had been a time when it had been normal for him to be with her in this setting. He had memory setting, many memories of sitting in the summer's living room, watching TV while Dawn did her homework. There were quiet evenings spent together, both together and separate, in their loss and grief. Sometimes they would talk or play cards. He'd taught her to play poker. Dawn had an amazing poker face, and she'd made him proud with her bluffing skills. 
Sometimes he would help her with her homework, telling her about his recollection of history and his classic English training. Oh, how William would come out to play on those nights. Only Dawn ever saw, of course, but he would read poetry and recite Shakespeare and make her laugh with his antics. It seemed that he was the only one who could get a smile out of her in those early days. Then there were the times when the loss got to be too much, and she would crawl into his arms and he would hold her. Her head would rest against his chest, her hair tickling his chin. He would lose himself in her scent and heartbeat. Two orphans they were, clinging to each other in a world that brought them so much pain and so little understanding. Buffy's friends had discouraged Dawn after a while, thinking it unhealthy for her to be so attached to him, to a soulless vampire, and their times together became more and more infrequent, relegated to the outside again like a dog that was supposed to be mean but only wanted to be loved. He hung on the fringes, looking in, missing his brief moments of acceptance. Moments of splendor in the, gla in the grass, he thought wincing at the way the verse came back to him with such ease. William might have been dead for over a hundred and twenty years, but his essence lived on in Spike, and now his soul was known to spout poetry at odd moments. He was kicked to the curb completely, of course, after said friends ripped Buffy out of heaven. No longer needed, he was all but abandoned, tossed away like so much garbage, the undead evil thing who was incapable of feeling, whose broken heart could only find solace at the bottom of a bottle. He hardly ever saw Dawn then, and after the stint with the singing demon, Buffy had nothing but anger for him. It wasn't his fault he spoke the truth, but she didn't see it that way. Then again, Buffy's primary defense mechanism was denial. Even after she had begun their torrid affair, she had denied everything between them, she denied her feelings for him and completely disregarded his feelings for her. Coming to him, hating him, hating herself and using him, she never once allowed herself to think that what they could be was something more, something wonderful. She'd never let him be gentle. Sex between them had always been violent and raw, except for the one time, the time right before Soldier Boy returned as the triumphant hero and blew everything to hell. That had been the only time they had come close to the lovemaking he had wanted to share with her. If only she had let him. Ah, don't go there. That way lies madness. Or more of it than there already is, he chastised himself. Turning off the TV, he rose to his feet. This niblet will never love you as the only thing that kept her safe and sane. She will never look at you with eyes that reflect your own pain and understand it. She will never hang on your every word, and she will never trust you with her life, he thought, resigned. But this dawn will also never lose her mother, or see her sister sacrifice herself for her. She will never know grief, or pain, or terror, because I will stop it. Joyce will not die, and Buffy will not jump to her death to save her sister, and no one but Giles will ever be the wiser that it had ever been any different. And no one will know what I sacrificed to make it all possible. 
He sighed and looked at the clock. Olaf will be making his appearance soon. Best get ready. He forced one foot in front of the other until he got to the bathroom. Wash your face, comb your hair. Don't think anything beyond that. Part of him wished for a Polaroid camera so he could see how bad the bruises were on his face. It had been a week and the swelling and most of the soreness was gone. Still, Dawn had winced when she saw him, so there must be some discoloration left. Not to be done for it. He sniffed his shirt to make sure it smelled okay, splashed some water on his face. Then he combed back his hair and walked to the living room to put on his coat. His duster was his shield against the world, and he donned it like his armor, protecting him from harm. He stood a little taller, his shoulders a little straighter, his heart a little braver. Once more unto the brink. He opened the door and walked out into the night. <laughs> Huzzah! All right, my friends, that is all I've got for you today. Hopefully that wasn't a downer. I guess, uh, well, that's... Hey, I'll be thinking about you this week. Um, it, hopefully we get an edit, editing stream going. Um, yeah, I'll be back here. Uh, since there's no edit, since there's no uh, Patreon hangout Saturday and Sunday, goal for the podcast, notice I say goal for the podcast, will be a week from today on Monday. Um, have a good week, please. Take care of yourself. <laughs>